Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. Today, like every day, we wake up hollow and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Reach for a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Good morning, my beloved friends. I start this morning with this beautiful stanza from a poem by the 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi as a way to ground us and to give us a wider perspective, as a way to suggest that sometimes it is helpful to step back and take in the expansive and generous nature of the world around us, especially at a time when I think it is so easy to pull inward, to become afraid and to lose perspective. Lately, I have been thinking about how two conflicting realities can exist side by side. Take fear, for example. Fear is real and necessary at times, and fear can also lead us to be forgetful, to forget how to be grateful, to forget how to be generous, how to be humble, how to, in other words, kneel and kiss the ground. So this morning, I invite us to be here, be nowhere else, be present now for this time together, for a time to step out and to trust, for a time to lower our guard, and then from that place of openness, listen to the words that we have just heard in the gospel this morning. But before we look at the specific verses we just heard, it's important that we remember what we are eavesdropping on some important things have just happened before we tune in to Jesus and his disciples today. They have just finished a meal, and not just any meal, but what they would later see as their final meal with their teacher, their Rabuni, the one they had followed and been shaped by for three years of traveling together. While they ate together that night, I can imagine Jesus taking bread and offering a blessing, breaking that bread, and then giving it to his disciples, and maybe looking intently at each one of them in the eyes, as he knew that this would be their last time together. And so as he offered that bread, he said to them that this bread would now be a symbol of his body broken and shared, and that each time that they did that, each time they had bread going forward, they would do that to remember God's love. Then after the meal, they did the same. He took a cup, he said a blessing, he shared the cup, and he said this cup was going to be a symbol of a new form of love, a new covenant, a new promise that God will be with you even after I am gone. And then after all that was done, even more astonishingly, he knelt down and that was the night that he washed their feet, the teacher 
washing the feet of the disciples. And finally, just before we read our verses today, Jesus goes on to predict who will betray him and who will deny knowing him in the coming days. Now remember that the Gospel writer of John is writing some 60 years after Jesus had walked among us, and we think that this story was told by the Gospel writer of John for the things that he needed his community to hear as well. So here we are after all that, and we listen in on the first part of what scholars call Jesus's farewell discourse. Over the next four chapters of John, we hear John's account of what Jesus might have said to his friends on that special and holy night as he knew of his imminent and final departure. Today and next Sunday, we will hear the beginning verses of this discourse, what we might call the beginning of his goodbye. They are a collection of words that are somehow at the same time beautiful and troubling, at the same time comforting and challenging, again an example of two conflicting realities coexisting. So this morning, amidst the context of our current reality, what I would like to do is simply lift up some of what I find beautiful, as well as some of what I continue to wrestle with because of the discomfort that they, the words evoke, understanding all of it, all of it as holy. If any of you have been to an Episcopal funeral or memorial service, you most likely have heard this passage in that context. We often read it during that service as a way to offer comfort at a time of grief and loss. They are words of solace and connection first to the disciples and now over the centuries, invoked to do the same for people when we often do feel abandoned or lonely with the absence of someone we love. It does not seem unreasonable to believe that on that holy night so many years ago, Jesus was trying in his own way to explain his imminent departure in words that they could hear. How many of us have had that kind of exchange with someone who was on the eve of dying? Trying to hear them tell us that they knew that they were leaving imminently and yet somehow assuring us that a part of them would always be with us. Again, two seemingly competing and true realities. It is always hard to say that kind of a goodbye, especially when you have loved and been loved well. And had we been sitting there with Jesus after that final supper, I suspect not a one of us could have fathomed the depth of that truth that night. So it is within that emotionally complicated, thick, dense, intense scene with Jesus, as he's starting to say goodbye to his beloved disciples, that we hear these words from him as an answer to one of Thomas's questions. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all of a sudden, there it is. I breathe in with comfort as I hear the first sentence. And then, honestly, I stop dead in my tracks with the sentence that follows. 
The latter are words that have been used to exclude and divide and hurt people for centuries. And upon hearing those words, I simply shut down. I don't know about you, but I have struggled my entire adult life with those last nine words. No one comes to the Father except through me. They just don't make sense to me. My Jesus wouldn't say that. We are with him at the end of three years of ministry, three years where we too have walked with him, teaching and preaching and healing, breaking down barriers, challenging power structures, crossing social and political boundaries, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last and on and on and on. So where does this come from and what was he trying to say? These are words that feel so diametrically opposed to what we have seen for the past three years throughout Jesus's ministry. Is this another example of two competing realities coexisting or is something else going on? Well, in my stewing about this all week long, I finally remembered a beautiful explanation given in a sermon preached back in 1999 by Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor titled, The Only Way to God. See what you think about this explanation. She tells us that in this moment, Jesus is not addressing some interfaith conference with Hindus and Buddhists present. He is talking to his closest friends at a tender farewell moment. This language is confessional language, or what we might call love language. Jesus is speaking to a small group of his very closest friends on the night before he knows he's going to die. He is up to his eyelids in trying to speak loving words to his broken-hearted friends. He is giving them everything he can think of to help them survive without him, and he uses the singular, exclusive language that people who love often use. And when John writes it down some 60 years later, he chooses to use the same language. It's the kind of language we use in our tender and teary moments, times when we say things like, you are the best mother in the world. You are the only woman in the world for me. No one has ever loved a child the way I loved you. In other words, this is not objective language to judge other religions or people from other faith traditions. This is language from the depth of relationship, spoken only for love to grasp. A child in need of reassurance asks her mother, do you love me, mom? Of course, my dear, I love all children, is not the most helpful answer. If Jesus had used similar language with the disciples, they would have been filled with even more anxiety and fear. Instead, he says something like this, I am the only one for you. You have made the right choice. No one can lead you to God better than I. I've got you covered. This is a helpful perspective for me as I hear the text this morning as one who needs to be reassured as well. For perhaps the first time, I'm now able to hear these verses as a love song being sung to those of us 
trying to walk the path that Jesus offers. And what about other traditions or paths? Yes, of course. They not only coexist, but do so in brilliant technicolor, making all of our journeys richer. I am who I am as a child of God, no more or less than anyone else on a different path. I embrace this Christian journey with all of its stumbling blocks because it is where I have been planted and where I am able to wrestle and rest and question and affirm. It is the story, the narrative, the way of looking at and being in the world that gives me hope beyond my own limitations and fears. And all of that is because Jesus came to offer a lifetime of love language for us to emulate and share. At this otherwise very anxious time, I don't need a message that excludes anyone. What I need is to believe in a God who sent Jesus to break down barriers and show us a path forward for greater love and healing and wholeness and connection. So let me end where we began this morning with words from a deeply spiritual man who is surely as beloved of God as any other. Rumi offers us an invitation to live and love with open hands, not clenched fists, to work hard and to stay focused, to be kind and gentle with ourselves while also remaining to be humble and open to the muse and the Holy Spirit. It seems an appropriate way to end this morning, a kind of spiritual expansive counterpoint to the uncomfortableness of sometimes trying to understand how to approach aspects of our beautiful sacred texts and our tradition. Today, like every day, we wake up hollow and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Reach for a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. May we continue to walk together, beloved friends, separated by necessity, but connected out of our common desire to make this way together and in doing so discover hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. May it be so.